When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome back to She and Her Season 2. Sandra and I are just getting settled back into life in North Carolina after a week-long trip to Cuba. That is right. And I was the final casualty of an illness (laughs) from Cuba, so I'm a little bit behind the recovery process of what was otherwise a great trip. And it taught me a lot about myself, (laughs) including I need to re-engineer my body to actually salsa dance properly yes and need to know spanish very well (laughs) (laughs) and it makes me want to learn spanish very well lots to think about and ponder and we'll be bringing you highlights and stories throughout the rest of this season Um, but today we are changing it up and we have a great show lined up for you that's right so if you're a listener to our show by now you know that we are all about exploring how gender and feminism shapes young women's lives and we really can't have a full conversation about that without talking about harassment yeah and sometimes it's overt and in your face like someone catcalling to you out their car window while you're walking down the street or inappropriately touching you when you're trying to get a drink at the bar and sometimes it's more subtle like a joke in the workplace that you're not quite sure whether it's appropriate and whether it crosses the line and it leaves you feeling confused and kind of uncomfortable But as we've discovered, there's both the act of the harassment and then the internal dialogue, bargaining, and question that comes after it. So today we're going to break format a little bit, and we're taking the concept of everyday harassment and looking at it from three very different perspectives. Yes. So up first, we hear from Megan Modafferi. She's a writer, editor, and community manager living in D.C. And a couple of years ago, she was having a conversation with her male partner, and offhandedly mentioned the number of times that she'd been catcalled that day. He was shocked to hear her description, and she was surprised at his reaction. So that conversation got her thinking about her everyday experience as a woman walking around in the world and what she calls the invisible monologue. So it's this persistent internal narrative that comes with moving around with this perceived threat of verbal and sometimes physical harassment. So she decided to create an audio short to explain and explore that winding monologue happening inside her head. Close your eyes and bring your attention to your breath. Claim these quiet moments for yourself every day. Seek them out in waiting moments 
Seek them out on the subway. Count your inhales, count your exhales. In, two, three, four. Out, two, three, four. Gently guide your awareness to your surroundings. Notice the soft aroma of urine, but do not fixate upon it. Let the sounds of, I can't can't hear hear you, you. I'm I'm underground, underground, wash over you as they get lost in the cell phone waves. Imagine that you too were drifting across invisible waves. Bring your awareness now to the men on either side of you. Note the rough way that one pushes his knee into you as he makes himself comfortable. But do not fixate upon it. Observe how the other man's arm rests gently upon yours. You may find yourself wondering, is he touching me on purpose? Or does he really have to spread his legs so wide? Or even, can I possibly make myself any smaller to avoid him? These thoughts are only natural. There's only so far you can suck in. Breathe in. I wasn't always afraid of being touched. I remember waiting near the front of a nearly empty warehouse venue as, for the entire opening act, people milled about aimlessly, bought another beer, lounged in the back. But then the opener played its last song, and I flinched at the skimming of skin on all sides. When the main band started, the crowd leaned ever forward with each chorus. I pulled my arms into myself to avoid the graze of anyone's arm, and I tried to preempt any motion that might bring new touches. My boyfriend noticed something was wrong, and he gave me a squeeze. Don't touch me. I felt like maybe I had to pee, but I couldn't see the end of the crowd on any side. Everyone was moving closer with the rhythm, not noticing my search for escape. Breathe out. What is this? I never used to be afraid of crowds, of touching. They say that a lot changes when you're in your 20s. Your taste buds, for one thing. You start to like and even crave foods you used to detest, like pickles, mushrooms, olives, for me. And if there's a genetic disposition toward anxiety or depression, they say that this is when it comes out. So, now I guess I'm afraid of a stranger's touch in a pulsing crowd. Touch is a funny thing, in that it's deeply contextual. Of course, many times people earn the right to touch you through trust, intimacy, consent. But, in the wake of my new fear, I started noticing the touches outside of those rules. The context that puts strangers at a little less than arm's length. Descending an escalator, I accidentally graze someone's hand, and we both jump, and our eyes leave their faraway thoughts. I'm I'm so so sorry. sorry, I say. So that feels dramatic, and then I'm embarrassed for the rest of the very short ride. And at a crowded subway station, strangers size each other up to guess which one of us will make it on the next train through sheer force of will and which will be left behind. I wonder always if my fear will flare up in these times, and I've been practicing my breathing just in case. Breathe out. Ten people wide, we impossibly enter the subway door that is no wider than two. I'm being touched on all sides. A small mousy girl on my right shares hip space with me. Behind me, I can feel a man's broad chest on the back of my neck, and a quick head turn swipes my arm with a ponytail. I just try to find a place to put my hands that isn't someone's body. I touch intentionally when I must, gently squeezing someone's arm as I pass them, and I keep my tone friendly as I say, excuse me, and move toward the subway pole. Breathe in. These moments are sometimes beautiful, aren't they? We're all sharing in the absurdity of city life, 
the hot and sweat, the crowded bodies they can't help but touch, and the subway poles covered from floor to ceiling with hands gripping for balance. We signed up for this, we think. This is part of the deal. This is what we all share, along with busy streets and flourishing arts, and the homeless people that we ignore on every corner. We signed up for this. And we all have that in common. We are one big, city-loving, masochistic heart beating on its way to the next big city thing. We've made it, we are thinking, in these moments. Breathe in. Until people take advantage of the anonymity of crowds, of the inevitability of touching. I ignore a cupping feeling on my backside because I assume it's someone's bag, or someone else's backside, or some other innocuous accident. And then I'm horrified as the cupping becomes a squeeze, and I turn and I find ten faces behind me and no clarity, no one to blame. I would report them, I would yell at them, I would hit them. But they're gone. Just another face in the crowd of all of us who made it. (laughs) Did we sign up for this too? A couple weeks later, I feel someone graze my backside in the subway station, and I whip around ready to bark a rebuke. And no one is there. It was just my own bag. This time. At times, you may notice yourself unconsciously holding your breath. Release it. Breathe out. Breathe out. Breathe out. That's the piece Subway Meditation, created and produced by Megan Montefiore. We now turn to look at a type of harassment that's particularly salient for women of our generation. And it's the kind that happens because of the amazing and terrible world of the internet. Yes. So Julianne Ross is a writer and editor. She's currently working for MTV News, but has written for a number of other outlets, including Mike, Wired, The Atlantic, and Everyday Feminism. And a couple of years ago, she wrote an article debunking the major claims driving the men's rights movement. And she received tremendous digital pushback and threats after this article hit the web. So here's Julie describing how things unfolded. Yeah, so men's rights activism um, is, you know, basically the belief that feminism is out to get men um, and that all of this talk of, you know, women's rights is actually masking the fact that men have it worse. Often arguments that come up are like, women don't have to be drafted. Um, Women often get custody of children in childcare cases. Um, Men die earlier. You know, it's like, it's a lot of, you know, they bring up these arguments. Um, My article was pretty much trying to take all of like the common arguments that they use and really dissect them um, to show some of the holes in the logic um, and to show how I do not think that this is a rational worldview. Um, And I think it's really dangerous when you hold it up as a rational worldview because it has fueled a lot of violence and anger against women. Um, And so I wrote an article debunking to the best of my ability a lot of the points that they bring up and trying to show how they didn't hold water. Um, And they're a very active online community. So once they got a hold of what I was writing, um, you know, I had some people sort of come after me um, and mostly just like on Twitter. um, But I had 
a couple of people sending me emails. Um, this was like before I sort of took more steps to make myself harder to reach. And it was pretty scary just to, you know, have that, that reaction to something that you wrote. It was really scary. Can you kind of set the scene for when you realize that you are getting this almost coordinated troll attack for us? Are you starting to get notifications on your phone? Like, what does that look like in real life? You know, really, it wasn't, it's not even like the volume of them because it wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I'm lucky. I wasn't one of those people who have them streaming in on my phone like every 30 seconds. Um, this was also a couple years ago. So, you know, Twitter was in a little different spot. Um, the worst moment for me was just like, opening my inbox, which is like usually just like emails from my mom (laughs) and seeing this email that just said get raped in the subject. And it was like someone like using what looked like a real Gmail address, not like a, you know, like someone's real name. And they just kept sending me email after email um, saying all these really horrible things that I deserve to have happened to me. And it just felt so personal. Like, it didn't feel like a Twitter, like, egg, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. it was someone who was, like, invading this, you know, very personal space that I live in every day. I think everyone, you know, spends a lot of time in their inbox um, and just emailing me again and again. And it was really scary. I didn't know what to do. It just felt like a wake-up call to, like, not all the feedback I get is going to be supportive. Hmm. And I had to figure out how to navigate that. So what did you do? You, you wrote in the piece that you end up printing out a number of these comments or emails and actually taking them to the police department. Yeah. So they freaked me out a lot because they included rape threats and, you know, so that I should be murdered and stuff. So I reached out to um, a women's listserv that I'm on um, and I asked, you know, if anyone had any advice. And I had a lot of people reach out to me and give me advice on what to do, um, or just, you know, be supportive. Um, I printed everything out. Um, I was reporting things to Twitter. Um, and then, you know, they said I should really call the FBI, you know, like if nothing else, you want to have a record that you did put it on their radar. So I called, um, the FBI and I, you know, tried to talk about what was happening and they were just like, are you joking? Like you're, you know, like you're mm-hmm. calling us about what we don't care. We can't do anything. Um, which was not fun to hear. Um, and so I called my local precinct and a woman answered the phone and she's like, you know, we can't do anything, but like bring a record of everything and we can make a file. And then if anything worse happens, there will be a file. And like, that's, I mean, if anything worse happens, like there being a file isn't the greatest comfort. Um, mm-hmm. But it's something, you know, there's a record. Um, I remember like having to go to like a local copy store because I didn't own a printer. And it was like very surreal to like hand my little USB drive over to the guy behind the counter and be like, can you print these horrible emails <laughs> for me? I've like conveniently la- labeled everything like rape email one, rape email two. Oh um, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, okay. <laughs> I know. It was like, it was oh. mortifying. Um, you know, and I like get them all and I put them in a little like manila envelope and I'm riding my bike and I, you know, I'm pretty shy. I go up to the desk and I'm like trying to explain what's happening. And, you know, you're in like a lobby and there's all these other people sitting there. And I talked to uh, the officer that, the woman at the front desk put me in touch with um he was looking through everything and you know it took first he had to be like he had to call back to his superior i remember and be like 
she's getting emails that say da 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 da. Does this qualify as harassment? So just it was like out of a sitcom, just like oh shouting it gosh. across the precinct. <laughs> wow! And like his superior, like sort of like ambles over, like starts reading them out loud, and then like, <laughs> yeah, dude, these and you're are like, harassment. is this my life right now? <laughs> I know it was just like this comedy of errors. You know, he looked at them at the emails, and he's like, you know, I'd like to punch him in the face, uh-huh. but there's nothing really I can do. Um, and he's like, you did the right thing coming in because now if he does anything else, like there is a record of his name in here and hmm. yada, yada, yada. Um, he was like, but that's really all I can do. Hmm. I mean, it's not closure. I'm lucky that nothing worse happened. Um, but I was just like, they have no idea what's going on. They don't know what to do about this stuff. Um, it was pretty disheartening. So I wonder if you see some connection between the way people communicate to each other in a way that's harmful virtually bleeding into the way that we talk to each other in real life? Um, Absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the errors that a lot of people make is assuming that the interactions we have online have less meaning or power than the actions that we have face to face. I'm not talking about like a Facebook-like substituting for a hug. I'm just talking about the fact that you can have really fulfilling online worlds and they're only getting more intricate and we're only getting more interconnected. And so I think the first step to dealing with things like harassment is to take what happens in our digital lives seriously in the sense that they affect our non-digital lives. Um, Just because something was written and like you read it on a screen, it doesn't mean it hurts less or is less impactful than if, like, I don't know, someone called you and said it. Um, Like, if you're Megyn Kelly and you have thousands of people bombarding you with threats and horrible things and Photoshopped images of yourself, like, that is going to have a mental effect on you. And to just tell people to tune it out is not the answer. How has receiving that kind of attack impact how you present yourself online, how you present your work? You mentioned earlier taking more steps to make it harder to contact you, talk us through um, sort of after this event, how it changed anything that um, you do as a writer and a journalist. Um, Well, I am way more paranoid than I was before. Um, You know, I've taken more steps to protect my like personal contact information. You know, I have like a couple like things I've written that are more personal that I just, you know, decided not to publish because I remembered what it felt like to have someone attacking me and I decided I didn't you know want these things out there Um, and it's definitely made me censor myself a little bit more and be a little bit more wary about how much I engage publicly with things Um, and I think a lot of women you know they might remove themselves from more public roles you know I don't write about this stuff as much as I used to and part of it is you know from fatigue and you know just knowing what People are going to email me or shout at me about um, knowing all the, like, counterpoints they're going to bring up and that don't make sense um, and just not wanting to deal with it and then feeling guilty for not wanting to deal with it. But I think it's a human response. And I think, you know, I've talked to other writers and not just, you know, women, like people of color face this all the time, Mm -hmm. LGBT people face this all the time. And it's hard to, like, write about something that's so close to you. And then also, so you're, like, sort of turning yourself inside out in just the act of writing and then to also have to deal with people who have taken no time to intellectually engage with your work. Um, You know, because trolls aren't people who are offering like valid critiques, like criticism I can handle, but people who just like want to yell that I'm a slut, like that is 
it just feels like such a waste of time and such a waste of my mental energy um, that I don't want to deal with. Um, Are there other stakeholders that you wish were more involved that you think could help negotiate this new sort of cyber world, balance this free speech with cyberbullying? No community or online platform really does enough. Um, but it's also it's really hard because, you know, if you're on Twitter, there are billions of tweets. Like, you know, I think that's or at least millions, if not billions of tweets sent every single day. And there is no way that human beings could mine all of those or all of, you know, the things saying that there's something that there's harassment going on. Um, so they have, you know, algorithms that look at it. And by default, some things that are not harassment are going to get lumped in with that. Like on Facebook, you know, they like ban nudity and this like ended up banning a lot of women's breastfeeding photos um, because they were like flagged as pornographic by an algorithm. And so it's hard. And so like as programs become more intelligent, it you know, that moderation will become better, but only if investment is made into it, which really comes down to valuing the contribution of women on your platforms. Um, if you want to keep women on your platforms and engaging you have to recognize that so many of them are speaking out about this and you have to prioritize it as an issue. You have to give funding to this issue. You have to develop new solutions to this issue. But I think it really begins with understanding that just telling women to shut up or to like, well, then get off Twitter if it bothers you so much is asking them to leave a space that has been shown to be an important place of conversation Mm -hmm. and sharing of information. And that's not right. And that's not fair. And if platforms don't want that to be the case, if they want it to be a community where anyone can feel um, empowered to talk and participate, then they need to pay attention to how certain groups are being targeted um, in an effort to basically silence them um, and make them leave these spaces. So I think it really comes down to, you know, more investment. And I think um, it comes, you know, in time, hopefully people understand more. And with education and people talking about how this can actually affect um, people in the quote unquote real world offline, make people more sensitive to how they're responding to um, these issues. Julian Ross is a writer and editor currently working for MTV News. We'll share her original article on Facebook and Twitter and be sure to check that out. And finally, we bring you one more piece from Jamila Reddy, a writer and theater maker living in North Carolina. Jamila wrote a brilliant piece about catcalling, and we asked her to read it for us. Here's Jamila. Silence is compliance. It's time we speak up about catcalling. Let's say a stranger wants to offer you a slice of cake. Let's even say they made this cake themselves. It's their favorite, I bet, the stranger thinks. Even if it's not their number one choice of cake, I'm sure they'll love it. Instead of offering you the slice of cake with a simple, hello, would you like a slice of cake? They take a fork full of it and shove it into your closed mouth saying, bitch, if you spit this out, there will be consequences. In the event that this metaphor is lost on you, this is what living in a rape culture feels like. The stranger is cisgender, heterosexual men who catcall pretty much everywhere. And the cake, well, those are the not-so-subtle stares, 
whistles, comments, and other forms of unsolicited sexual attention that girls, women, femmes, and gender nonconforming people all over the world are expected to simply swallow with or without our consent. Catcalling is a symptom of rape culture, a culture in which violence against women is common and widely accepted as the norm. On a global level, rape culture denies its victims of agency, the universal right to act independently and make free choices. Catcalling, accepted by many as just the way things are, is a not-so-subtle way of saying to its victims, I can do or say whatever I want to you, and you can't do anything about it. Like most people, I'd imagine, I'd like to walk from place to place uninterrupted or simply have a few quiet, solitary moments while waiting for my bus or my train. Not having a say in the terms of engagement between myself and another human being denies me of my right to choose my experience. Certainly, I can do something about catcalling in so much as I can shout back, fuck you, leave me alone, or offer the debatably less offensive, thank you, but no thank you, I do not want to engage with you right now, but most of the time, I just keep walking and pretend it's not happening. I'm silent, not because it doesn't bother me, but because I'm afraid of the violence that might ensue if I respond any other way. Every single day that I leave my house to walk somewhere, I prepare myself for the inevitable onslaught of lewd comments and aggressive stare-downs from dudes on the street. If I am lucky enough to be spared direct affront, I see it happening all around me. I see men's eyes follow women's bodies down the block. I see clusters of men halting their game of cards or jovial conversation to stare down a woman as she's passing by. I can do something about catcalling in so much as I can stop and engage with these men and say, hey brother, I want to let you know that when you whistle at me, stare at my ass as I'm walking past you or shout things like smile sexy, it actually makes me feel really uncomfortable. At which point said kissy face maker or Mr. can I have a sip of that drink baby might respond, I didn't mean any harm by it, sweetheart. I just think you're a beautiful lady and I wanted you to know it. At which point I might offer, I understand that your intention wasn't to cause me harm, but your impact, despite your good intentions, is that I feel uncomfortable at best and fearful at worst, especially when you continue to try and talk at me, even after I've made it very clear that I don't want to engage with you. I feel afraid for my safety because what you're communicating in that moment is that you get to do and say whatever you want to me, like whistle at me, shout at me, grab at me, touch me, rape me, and it doesn't matter if I want you to or not. Believe it or not, I've actually given this approach a try. The man who told me to smile initially seemed surprised that I was talking to him, then confused about what he was hearing, and then very quickly, angry. I walked away before I could see the end of the conversation through. I know, I know, hashtag not all men. Though I'd love to have the time and energy to give every man who catcalls me the benefit of the doubt and proceed with the aforementioned level of engagement, 
Most of the time, I'm just trying to get somewhere without having to take an extra two hours of my day for the three to seven rape culture awareness sessions with strangers that I pass on the sidewalk. I literally do not have the time to put my moves on pause to educate these people, and I have serious doubts about the effectiveness of a one-woman grassroots effort. I'm tired just thinking about what it would mean to actually commit to talking to men who catcall me about why their behavior is problematic. Where would I begin? Hey, thanks for the compliment. Have you heard of rape culture? And so, when I am catcalled, my attempts at maintaining agency, headphones blasting, averting my gaze, quickening my pace, feel complicit and disempowered. Not only does my silence uphold the norm that this shit is okay, my silence is an act of survival, an effort to protect myself from further harm. I like to think of myself as a citizen of the world, someone whose behaviors seek to manifest the kind of world in which I want to live. That said, I've got to pick my battles. Personally, it's not my work to be the hall monitor of appropriate social encounters, It is, however, my work to uplift a culture of consent in my own life in hopes that my doing so will extend to my environment, one in which we honor the universal, individual human right to make choices, however grand or small. Until we acknowledge dysfunction as dysfunction, it will continue to operate as is. Rape culture is sustained when we pretend that it's not happening, when we make no intentional actions against it, when we tolerate it, when we say, that's just how it is. It's time for us to start having actual intentional conversations with each other about rape culture and how we all, unwillingly or with intent, participate in it. It's time we start talking to our friends, family, co-workers, and peers about what it means to establish consent culture in our own lives such that over time, the norm evolves. It's time we start talking about catcalling and letting people who do it know that it's not okay. If the voices of the people who are catcalled were enough to end the phenomenon, well, you wouldn't be hearing this right now. Trust me, if we could do this shit alone, it would be done. I can't make assumptions about the intentions of every man who tries to talk to me, but I'm not going to put my safety on the line to find out. What I will do is have these conversations in spaces in which I feel safe, knowing that a man who catcalls is someone's brother, someone's uncle, someone's father, someone's son, in hopes they know someone able and willing to have this conversation without feeling unsafe. Zora Neale Hurston made it clear, if you are silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. So here's my part. I've said my piece. I can only hope the message gets through to whomever needs to hear it. That's Jamila Reddy. She's a writer with a ton of other amazing pieces that you should check out, and we will link you to all of them on our social media accounts. We're going to take a quick break, and then we will bring you our moms. Stay with us. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to She and Her. So we asked our moms to describe experiences that they've had with street harassment, and their stories are really different, but they really highlight to us the spectrum of what that can look like. It can be overtly sexual and it also can be just straight up bullying um i wouldn't say it had memorable experiences i think several times um i was catcalled in ways like hey four eyes because you know i always wore glasses and it hurt and that would that happened more than once Hmm. um i would say many times and you know i wore these sort of black national health glasses so they weren't that glamorous but um I really didn't do anything. I I think I just sort of felt bad, you know, felt really negative about my appearance and just sort of, you know, felt sad and went into myself. And the only other thing, and it really wasn't catcalling, but it was actually a close friend's dad. He called me a hairy Irish dancer because I always had poofy hair. So that was something that always stuck with me um, because I was at an age, it was at a time when I was sort of sensitive, like teenager, 13, 14. So I always remember him doing that and, again, felt sort of hurt and didn't didn't say anything to mm-hmm. him back. And, you know, I didn't have any particularly great responses. Well, I think every woman or most women have had experiences with that. I mean, catcalling, whistling. The only time that I've... I can say that I actually overtly responded, and it wasn't to a cat call or a whistle or something like that. When I was in Europe, there was a an incident. We were in a little shop or something getting getting uh, a sandwich. You know, it was just like a walk-in place and buy something, and this guy came up to me, and he was, I think, Italian. Or that was what I deduced from his accent. And he started going on, and he really got in my face. I mean, really close. And I I scratched him. <laughs> oh, my God. You scratched him? I did. I scratched his face. I put my hand up, and I scratched his cheeks. His <laughs> cheek. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. And how did he respond well, yeah, to that? Well, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. It just, <laughs> it, it, you know, I did not feel... Safe then. I mean, we got out of there in a big hurry. I'm sure he was more stunned than I was. Mm. But um, yeah, I did. I clawed his cheek. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I've never I heard that story. With that dude at all. It was just. It was really strange. Well, what advice would you give to young women who are 
being straight harassed? What would you tell you know, them to I do? Think it, uh, I don't know that I have advice except to do what you are most comfortable with. At this stage in my life, my instinct would probably be to turn around and give them the finger. <laughs> 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 that coming from your, your mother. Okay, there you go. Sheila Rao and Rebecca Davidson are moms, and you'll hear their thoughts in every episode this season. We want to give a special shout out to our incredible intern, Anna Canada, who held down the fort while we were in Cuba and is doing amazing work this season. Our theme music was composed by Cameron Laws and Sam Gerwick, and Cameron Laws also designed our logo. Thanks for listening, y'all. You can find us at She and Her Radio on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And we'll be back soon. All right. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.